Holy Spirit, as you have given us your word, and you've given us all that you want us to have to lead us to faith, to grow us in faith. And so teach us today what you have for us from your word. We pray that it would do its powerful thing in our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Today we finally get to some of what I would say the Sermon on the Mount is especially known for, and that is some of the commands or ethical statements, ethical commands that Jesus tells his followers. So even many non-Christians or even atheists who have read the Sermon on the Mount and might like some things Jesus said, it usually comes from this next section we'll get into that talks about different, you might say, moral things that Jesus addresses on some level. So that's where we're getting into. We're at, you know, we started at chapter 5 and now we're into 17, but we still got a long, long ways to go. We're actually going to take today's reading out of order from the way it's written. So we're going to take that second section first, but I'm going to read, read all of it, and I'll put it on the screen for you. Jesus said, come on, there we go, come on, hmm, well, I'll start reading it, and, and you have it in your bulletin, and we'll eventually get it up there. So we're going to start the second section where Jesus talks about murder, of all the kind, loving topics to pick out. What's the first one? <laughs> Jesus says, you have heard it said to those of old that you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So... If you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come offer your gift. And it's not going to be in the slide, but he puts up, uh, come to terms quickly, or he says, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going him to court. Very practical things. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you'll never get out till you have paid the last penny. Okay, go back like two now. To the first text one. It's just, is it not picking it up? Point. Yeah. So we're talking about this series is called Discipling. That is, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? What do disciples look like? And so Jesus starts to go through a number of things and, and tells you, what, what do disciples do? What do they, how do they act? Hey, we got power now. Good. And the first thing we're going to see today, as you might have already seen, when Jesus talks about a number of topics, disciples obey. If you're a disciple of any person, uh, any anyone, you might, you know, could be funny where you say, hey, I really follow, you know, this blog and this person. I'm a disciple of them. Disciples, they want to do what their authority tells them to or what their authority teaches and says. So the first thing as disciples, disciples obey. You want to be like your master. Followers follow their leader. So discipling 101 is doing the things that dis disciples do. Disciples want to obey their masters. And so if we are disciples of Jesus, we will obey him. That's, that's the first part. So, we obey Jesus on this. What does he say? As I already said, you have heard it said, and you've heard it in the Ten Commandments, 
that you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So murder, fifth commandment, God gives the ten commandments in the Exodus. And remember, it is God revealing his will only after he has saved them in every way possible. Saves them from slavery in Egypt, brings them out in miraculous power, defeats Pharaoh and all, all his army, saves them by the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. And, and they weren't asked, were you good enough or, or do you deserve to be one of God's people? If you trusted God and, and put the blood on, on the doorpost, you were saved. And then when they were brought out, they had no water, no food in the desert. God gave them manna and water. And then finally, God leads them all the way to Mount Sinai. And then God says, this is my will. This is what it means to be my people. This is my good will for society, for humanity. And that's the Ten Commandments. You have no other gods. Don't misuse God's name. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not speak falsely of people. Do not covet. Most of these you say, oh yes, it makes total sense. Right? Yeah, I get it. I get it. All of these are God's good will. But there is one problem with laws. What's the problem with any law that you make or that anyone makes? Here's the problem. If you are driving on the highway and the speed limit is 70, moment of truth, how fast do you go? <laughs> Most common response is probably 79, right? Because you think that at 80... Police officers will probably, more than likely, be, be willing to pull you over at that point. But at 79, you're probably safe, right? Guilty as charged, right? Now, if you're driving just around in town, though, here and say, you know, along 32nd Street where the speed limit is 30, how fast do you go? Yeah, 34, 5, because mm, you think if I go, like, closer to 40, they might get me, but, you know, the, the ratio is different. But if you make a law, any law, with speed limit, you think, well, they, don't, they mean it to a point. And for the record, any police officer is well within their right and their calling and vocation to pull any one of us over for even going one over because it's breaking the law, right? But we think we can break it because uh, any, any law that's made makes most of us want to say, well, uh, what can I really get away with? Or, or what's, what's the least I have to do to comply to stay out of trouble, right? That, that's how we approach most laws, right? So, so the principle we apply to any law that's made is, well, what's, what's the least I have to do and still be okay? So uh, you might apply that to, to work and say, well, what's the least I have to do to, you know, keep my job or not be in trouble with my boss? Or people say, well, what's the, le what's the least amount I have to, you know, come to church for in a year in my lifetime for, for God and I to be, you know, just okay. I, I, don't, I don't really want to do any more than that. I just want to know that, you know, I'm good. Or what's the least amount I have to give so that God's not mad at me? Or what's the least amount of, and by the way, those, those questions sound as ridiculous as this one. What's the least amount of time I have to spend with my grandkids so that they think I'm a decent grandmother? Right? How many of you that are grandmothers have ever even thought that? You haven't thought that, right? But that's kind of how it seems when we get to, to God's law and, and say, what's the least I have to do? Because Jesus doesn't work that way. Jesus sees right through it. Jesus sees right through you and me. And it's not about what the least we have to do, but as God's people, what, what's the most that we can do to love our neighbors? 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Not, the, not what's the least I have to do. What's the most that I can do to love my neighbor? Or what's the most that I can do to help someone else or to do God's will? So Jesus says, you've heard it said, you know the commandment, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother, throughout Matthew, brother means brother in the faith, Christian, fellow Christian, angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. I probably think that most of us would agree here that murder is a bad thing for people, for families, for society, right? Don't do it, okay, but most of us also probably have not ever done that, and so we can check the box. Okay, good, done. Next, kept it. But also, uh, with the speed limit, we also think then, well, how close can I get to something without getting in trouble or stepping over the line? And so we've all been in situations where you walk away at, and maybe say to somebody else, do you, do you know what they did to me? Or do you know what they said to me? You know, they really, really hurt me. Do you, do you know what she did? Or do you know, do, you know how, do you know how terrible of a person they are? Of course, I won't let them get away with, with this, and, and I'll, I'll get them back somehow. And, you know, of, of course, you wouldn't murder them, but you have this whole other range of things where, where you would nurse a hurt and an anger and, and maybe find a backwards way to get back. At, we've all been there, I'm pretty sure, and do we know how powerful our, our anger is? And we might even say, boy, I, I, I won't do anything to them, but boy, do I really hate them. And so I wonder how many times have we nursed a hurt or an anger over and over and over. And Jesus says, it's not just what you do outwardly to someone else. He sees right through that, and he sees right through here in your heart. What's in your heart matters too. And maybe it matters even more than what's out there sometimes and what we do because everything we do starts here. Jesus says, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Nobody ever did any harm to another person without first thinking about it in their heart. And that's how powerful anger can be. So are you and I willing to follow Jesus enough, be discipling enough to pay attention to even to things like our anger? And then repent and believe the gospel. So then Jesus then follows it up with some practical instructions that I think have a lot to do with what people did in his day. So it takes a little bit of translating to find out what he wants for us today. It says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar, meaning in the temple in Jerusalem where they went, and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift at the altar first be reconciled to your brother and then come back to offer your gift. What Jesus is saying is that your relationship with God is not separate to your relationship with other people. Our relationship to each other is very much connected to our relationship with God. And our relationship with God is very connected to other people. And so I can't come to worship and then leave out here these doors and then go treat other people badly. It doesn't work that way. That's not how disciples act. So I can't worship God 
and then leave here and harbor hate in my heart. That's not how it works. That's not what it means to be a disciple. Following Jesus doesn't work that way. You can't worship on Sunday and be a jerk on Monday. Jesus says, first, be reconciled. And the more we worship God, the, the more we will be we will and want to reconcile with each other and other people, particularly those who we have anger towards. So first, be reconciled. So, what's the first thing we learn here? As disciples, disciples obey. Jesus expects his disciples to take seriously what he says. So every one of these things that Jesus says throughout the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus really does expect his disciples to to do it to try to follow, to try to obey what he says. Disciples obey. Now, there's a big question that looms behind this, and that is why. Why do disciples obey? Why obey? Why obey anything? Why obey anyone? Why why do my young children obey me as parents? Well, I hold the keys to consequences. There's one thing. But why, why later in life do I hope they still want to do the right things that I'm trying to tell them now? Why? Why do disciples obey? So that gets us back to the first part that we didn't look at yet about Jesus fulfilling the law. So disciples obey. The question is why? So we go back to verse 17. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is, I think, the most difficult section of the entire sermon, and how you look at it uh, affects so many other things. This is something that I really wrestled with for a long time. First of all, Jesus says, I have come not to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. What does that mean? Well, Jesus is not some uh, renegade hippie shooting from the hip, just going and doing whatever he wants. Like many people want him to be, well, you can do whatever you want. God doesn't care. You know, Jesus, you know, stuck it to the man and did what he wanted. No, Jesus came doing God's will, fulfilling all of the Old Testament, all of God's law. God has been promising to send the Savior, the promised one, because God keeps his promises, and here he has. And Jesus is saying, this is, this is what I've come for. Now, if you already read in Matthew so far, we're only to chapter 5, but five times already Matthew has said about something that happened to Jesus and then said the phrase, this happened to fulfill what was spoken by the Old Testament prophet or by, in the Old Testament. God, is, God promised this fulfilled what happened and was spoken of hundreds of years ago. So once we get to Jesus here, it's already been said of him five different times that he has come to fulfill God's promises in the Old Testament. Okay, now the hardest verse is there though. Jesus says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that 
of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom. So whoever relaxes one of these, no, 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 I, I haven't come to do away with it or relax any laws, or I haven't come to say sin and do whatever you want. No, he's going to follow it completely and fulfill all of it. But then, but then this is the challenge. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom. How, how is that possible? That's the challenge. You see, if you were to ask Jesus' disciples who are gathered there listening, if you were to ask them who was the, in their day was the most upstanding, most godly, most moral, who are the, the good people, guess who they would have told you they were? Pharisees. Those are the good people. They are the uh, blue-collar faith renewal movement. Hey, we messed up a long time ago, and now we're not. We are, you know, turn back to God, turn our nation back to God, and, and follow God's way. That's the Pharisees. So if Jesus would say, who's the most moral, who's the go- most godly, who are the best people of your day, they would say the scribes, and particularly the Pharisees. But Jesus says, you must be even better than them. How on earth Will that happen? How can you exceed the the kindest, best people you can think of? Well, here's the thing. There was a major flaw with the Pharisees. We know it because we read the rest of the Gospels, but what was the flaw of the people that you would think were the most upstanding, most godly, most moral people in your day that were doing God's will, following God's command? What was the flaw? It was that outwardly everything looked good. They could check all the boxes. Nope, didn't kill anybody. Nope, didn't, kept all the commandments. No other gods, didn't murder, no adultery, no theft, no, done it all. Outwardly they looked good, doing the right things, not the wrong things. They gave, they served, they worshiped. But what does Jesus say to them? Inwardly, their hearts weren't for God. They weren't doing the right things for God. They were doing them for themselves. Which means they were doing many good and right things so that God would like them, be pleased with them, bless them, be happy with them. They obeyed in order to receive the blessings from God. If we're good enough, you know, God won't punish us anymore, life will be good. That, that was the Pharisee way of doing it. So everything looked good on the outside, but in the inside, they were trying to earn the favor of God. And that'll never work. That's not how Jesus works. So why does Jesus say this to his disciples? How on earth are we going to get more righteousness than the Pharisees? Remember where we started. The very first thing Jesus says is what? Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's where we start. The poor in spirit inherit the kingdom. Those who know they don't have it all together and trust in God's mercy receive God's mercy. And then a few verses later, Jesus uses the same word. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be satisfied. They will be filled. So blessed are those who hunger and thirst, you could even say, for salvation, for God's saving work, for saving faith. Jesus says, you will have it. I'm giving it to you. So Jesus is already blessing his disciples with saving faith. They're inheriting the kingdom. We are given righteousness from Jesus. And then he goes on. We'll talk about this this coming Wednesday. He calls his disciples and says, you are salt and light. Wow. That, so all these things Jesus is telling you, making you, follow me and I will make you fishers of people. He is the one forming us. He is the one doing it. 
So Jesus is giving the grace that he, he brings. Jesus is filling his disciples with saving faith, with his righteousness. Jesus is giving it to them. So, how on earth could you ever have more righteousness than the scribes or the Pharisees? Only if somebody else who has it gives it to you. And guess what? That's what Jesus does. Jesus gives it to you. So, let's return to this. Why obey? First, disciples obey. Now we're going to complete this, and we'll keep building on it in the coming weeks. Disciples obey from God's favor, not for God's favor. Can you say that with me? Disciples obey from God's favor, not for God's favor. So, disciples obey, yes. We do what Jesus says, what Jesus wants, but not for God, that's the Pharisees, they want God's blessings, God, if you do good enough, God will bless you even more, not to earn anything else, earn anything more, it's from God's favor that you have it all already. Jesus, in the sermon already, has said to his disciples, you inherit the kingdom, I am giving you righteousness, you are salt, you are light, you are blessed because I am blessing you. You and I believe that, that we have, you have every favor of Jesus. Everything Jesus has earned and won in his life, his death, his resurrection, it's all yours. You have absolutely every blessing and grace from Jesus, and you can't earn it at all. So disciples obey from God's favor. You can't earn anything more than you already have, and yet Jesus says, go and do my will and be my people and obey me. This is what it looks like to follow me. And so we say, yep, okay, I'm baptized, I'm forgiven, I'm, I'm a new creation. Now I get to walk out the doors and act like a new creation because disciples obey from God's favor, not for it. Say it with me one more time. Disciples obey from God's favor, not for it. May the peace of Jesus, which does go beyond our hearts, our understandings, keep your hearts and minds in faith in Christ Jesus. Amen.